Hello, I'm Katrina Strickland, editor of Good Weekend magazine. Good Weekend Talks will be back in late January 2023 with plenty of exciting interviews booked in the calendar. But for now, please enjoy one of our most popular episodes from the past year. And don't forget to subscribe and share. Hi, I'm Conrad Marshall, and from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Good Weekend Talks, a magazine for your ears in which we take a deep dive into the definitive stories of the day. We've recently relaunched our podcast into a new look, or should I say new sound, format, in which top writers and editors from across our newsrooms host discursive conversations with the people capturing the imagination of Australians right now. In this week's episode, we speak with Ben Crow, the Melbourne-based but globally renowned mindset coach who works with everyone from world champion surfer Stephanie Gilmore to AFL star Dustin Martin, recently retired Grand Slam champion tennis player Ash Barty and current Australian of the Year Dylan Alcott. Crow is very much a disciple of vulnerability crusader Brene Brown and was the subject of a recent Good Weekend cover story, Mind Games, written by Good Weekend senior writer Melissa Fife. Mel visited Crow in Byron Bay, took his online masterclasses, and is the host of our episode today about motivation and mindset, values and courage mantras. Thanks, Conrad, and welcome, Ben Crow. Thank you, Mel. Thanks for the invitation to be here. I just wanted to point out to our dear listeners that this is a highly unusual situation. We normally interview people before we profile them. So I wasn't even sure that you'd come into the studio today, Ben, because <laughs> I did call you a walking bumper sticker, I think. <laughs> That's nothing. Conrad, your good friend, uh, I think he wrote saccharin was uh, a way to describe my work, which I had to actually ask my wife what saccharin actually meant. She said it's very sweetly and sugarly and I go, no way. That's, thanks, Conrad. So. Look, that's okay. As long as the messages stick, you know, if a bumper sticker sticks, if a message sticks, you know, you learn the lesson some way, Mel, I'm okay. I'm okay with you taking the piss out of me. That's totally fine, Mel. That's good. So one of the things that you recommend your clients do is have a courage mantra or even a few courage mantras, which helps them with the hard things and build self-confidence. What was yours when you woke up this morning? (laughs) Well, if I need a courage mantra just to wake up, that's, that's pretty scary, right? That's, that's not a good way to start the day. I used a courage mantra before this interview, I just be, walk, before I'm walking into Channel 9 Studios here. Yeah, and so the mantra before I give an interview or a talk is, what is it? I'm imperfect, but I'm worthy, and I've got something to say. So that just gives me permission to, you know, um and ah and so forth and not be so distracted about thinking it's about me. That's why most people fear public speaking the most. Right? Next to death, everyone talks about you know, the fear of public speaking. The reason we fear public speaking is because we think it's about us, right? And that whole spotlight on us, we're going to make mistakes and so forth. But if you reframe your perspective, and my courage mantra does that for me, it's not about me, right? I'm coming in to have a conversation with Mel. It's my opportunity to hang shit on you, by the way, because, (laughs) you know, the first time we met, there was a few, you know, false starts getting up to Byron Bay. And now it's like four degrees in Melbourne. It's a slightly different. Yeah, it's a slightly different way we. uh, we get to catch up. But getting back to the mantra, when I think it's a, not about me, I'm imperfect, but I've got something to say, my job is to create an environment or to educate or inspire in some way, shape or form, right? And that just, you know, permission to make mistakes and it's okay to be, to be more human. To your question though, when I wake up in the morning, what do I say to myself? Yeah. So I just practice the gratitude manifesto. Like I literally just say to myself, I'm so grateful and thankful for and that takes my perspective from, you know, expectation or picking up my phone, checking my calendar, and all of a sudden you get distracted by 
the future and what are you going to do today? And it's not a good feeling. If you can just lie there before you get out of bed and just practice being grateful for something or thankful for something, your perspective shifts in the most amazing way. And from that, then I just remind myself of what my purpose is, what my values are, what my dreams are. And that just puts me in a really good, really good mood to kind of win the morning and win the day. Now, in your case, you have porridge with maple syrup, which is one of your ways to win the morning and win the day. But whatever it's blows a, your hair back. It, it's, a, it's a winner. I can rec- highly recommend it. Now, I didn't put this in the piece, but when you were mm. born, your father put a bet on the Melbourne Cup, didn't he? <laughs> yeah, he did. I was born on Melbourne Cup Day, 1968, although it took my family about six years to find the birth certificate because I'm the youngest of six. So, you know, I was left to my own devices. But we had a, um, a friend of the family who was a jockey and the Bacos family and jockey Bacos was in the Melbourne Cup. So good luck sign, you know, mum and dad just had a baby boy. I don't know whether the horse had a reference to Ben in it. Um, I think I'm getting my stories mixed up with another horse. My dad put a whole lot of money on that had Ben in it that came last. But this horse also came last. <laughs> was your dad right? very good at betting? I'm just guessing he wasn't. <laughs> I don't think he was a very good gambler. And it runs in the family as well because I'm, I'm a terrible one as well. So, yeah, it was probably a bad open to kick things off. But, yeah, hopefully it got better after that. I think, I think so. Now, you grew up in Melbourne. I've spoken to your sister, so I know that you were the adored youngest child <laughs> of a family of six, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I come from a small family, but... That just to me seems idyllic, like an idyllic childhood that you had, What was it? Well, I think it's very funny that my sister Louise said that I was adored because they spent most of my childhood picking up, uh, stealing all my food off my plate. <laughs> so the reason right. I don't like certain foods is because I never tasted them until I was about seven or eight um, when I actually got to taste them on my own. And yeah, my sister Louise in particular used to play an enormous amount of practical jokes on me, as did the rest of the family. So I like how she said I was adored, but yeah, I mean, it was definitely beautiful in the context of my childhood memories are so lovely and I just have these memories of laughter and camaraderie and it just feels like all my friends wanted to come over and hang out with the crows because there was so much self-deprecation humor and, and just a beautiful connection. So in that regards, I have amazing, amazing family memories. On the flip side, I'd say it was also really, really hard. Like we didn't have a lot of money and for mum and dad were really big on education and sending us to, I think Whitefriars College had only just come out in the 1960s. So, you know, we went to school there in the 70s and the 80s and, and Siena College was a, a pretty new school as well. So, but mum and dad were really big on education, but to put six kids through education with, you know, not a lot of money, so there was a lot of sacrifices and I do remember, you know, a lot of arguments over money and just counting the pennies sort of things, but Mum and Dad were also very big on family and family holidays. Yeah, so we'd spend the summer down at Janjak renting this same house. God, I wish we'd bought it. You know, yeah, back, back then, back in the day, <laughs> back in the it early was like five thousand dollars <laughs> or something. Totally, nineteen seventies. <laughs> but it was really big for them to have that those adventures and those experiences and those relationships and those memories, which absolutely I, I have, and and I covered those memories as well. You've always loved the ocean and been a keen surfer. Tell yeah. me about the day you got into trouble and your brother was there for you. Oh, did I tell you that story? Yeah, you did. Oh, okay, yeah. I think I was a 10 or 11 years old and obviously as the youngest, you always look up to your brothers and sisters and, and try to emulate them and copy them. And Danny went out swimming at Janjuk Beach one day. There's this rock called Bird Rock. It's quite an infamous rock for anyone who knows the Janjuk area. And they used to swim out at high tide and jump off the rock. So I swam out them one day, but it was really big surf. And I didn't realize that until I started swimming out behind them. And when it got closer to the rock, it was, the surf was so big and I was just getting smashed under. And it was almost like too dangerous to turn back. So I thought, okay, I'll try and get to the rock. 
But every time I got to the rock, these massive waves were just smashing me under, and there was lots of rips, and it was really, really dangerous. And I thought, oh, she's, I'm in, I'm in trouble here. And I got one hand on the rock when another wave just pushed me so far under, and I literally couldn't get up. And I remember just getting up to the surface and just gasping for air. I looked up and there's these massive waves about to hit me again. And I've got scratches all over me. I'm bleeding everywhere from just hanging onto the rock. And I heard some commotion. Anyway, a wave hit me. I went down under and I thought, I actually thought I'm, I'm gone here. And all of a sudden, I just feel this hand coming. It felt like it was 40 foot tall, this hand that just kind of pushed me off my bum right onto the rock. Like I was out of the air about four feet. And it was Danny. He must have seen what was happening, dived off, swam around and pushed me up on the rock and literally saved my life. And I remember crying. I was on top of the rock and, you know, I reckon for 15, 20 minutes, didn't want to jump off at all. It's just, you know, no literally petrified. Yeah. But jumping off the front of Bird Rock is actually quite safe. There's no rips and so forth. And you can kind of get out through the channel back to shore. So it took me about 20 minutes, but Danny and his friends all stayed with me to get me back in. Yeah, you can only join the dots looking back on your life. I think that might have been one of the catalysts to why I got into surf lifesaving um, a few years later with two of my good friends, Simon Strike and Ash Rowan, got into surf lifesaving at Jan Jack. I think maybe it was because I had that experience, that, that lifesaving experience. I reckon I also got into it because I heard if you have these wind cheaters, the girls love it and around the <laughs> bushfires down there. <laughs> Bonfires down there. Hang on, so. what wind cheaters? Is that your Garfield wind cheater that you met your wife? It was, yes, surf life saving wind cheaters. It's kind oh. of like a badge of honour. Right. You know, it, it right. means you've got your bronze medallion and so forth. But I thought it was pretty cool. So, no, it wasn't the Garfield wind cheater. And I, and I thank Sally for that um, that beautiful reference to my fashion attire, which I do agree with, by the way. Yeah, she, she saved my life from a fashion sense. <laughs> That's your wife, Sally Grace, who you met in a pub when you were. Uh, wearing a Garfield wind cheater, p- pink paisley pants, and green boat shoes, as I recall. In, in my, def- you are a real catch. <laughs> in my defence, the pink paisley pants were rip curl, and and they've come back in in recent times. So I agree, the green boat shoes were a disaster, and the white Garfield wind cheater. A friend of mine, Andrew Smith, I think his sister was selling these wind cheaters of cartoon characters and so forth. So. You know, Garfield was a pretty cool cat back in back in his day. So, oh, has he? I don't think he's any less cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, retro fashion and so forth. But no, I agree. It was, uh, uh, yeah, I was a, a walking disaster from a fashion sense. Now, your dad died obviously when you were sixteen, and you were in the house, and you and your brother Danny, who you just mentioned then, yeah, um, tra- tried to save his life when he was having a heart attack. What was that like, and how did the loss of your father affect you in the coming years? Yeah, yeah, and I've spoken about this this publicly. Life doesn't prepare you for those kind of experiences, Mel. And yeah, that night um, we'd been to the Bruce Springsteen concert, and I remember singing Bruce Springsteen songs through the cassette player in the in the car all all the way home. We were on such a high, and we got home I reckon about midnight and went to bed. And I think it was about two o'clock in the morning when I heard Mum screaming, and I got up and ran in. My bedroom was right next door, and he just got out of hospital from having a few heart attacks a few weeks earlier, and it was his. I think it was his first or second night back at home. Yeah, it, it had another heart attack, but this one was a massive one, unrecoverable as we found out later. And But yeah, I just went straight into, into CPR mode. Danny came running in, so he did the CPR and I was doing the, the mouth-to-mouth with Dad. And yeah, I, th- I think I hold on to this that my brother said, whether it was just a placatus afterwards, that we kept him alive for 20 minutes until the ambulance arrived, so forth. So whether we did or not, it's kind of arbitrary, right? I like to think that we did, but... Yeah, I mean, the whole thing's a blur from from that moment on. I was 
All my sisters came over, Patrick came over, my brother who's a doctor, ambulance arrived, and then, yeah, we're just all waiting in the room to find out if he's going to get through or not. And I remember um, seeing my mum hold my brother up, and who's a dog. He's 15 years older than me, so, you know, kind of, I guess I looked up to him. I was such a young kid at the time. And, and yeah, I remember never seen him cry before, and to see him break down, like, the way he did, that was kind of the realisation, wow, this is this is actually happening, you know, I've actually just lost my dad. And yeah, the, the next morning I remember um, listening to a Joni Mitchell song and that kind of blur that I didn't remember anything, you know, that, that um, classic time in the morning, that dozing kind of feeling. And suddenly the last line of that song was the sobering for me that doesn't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Mm, yeah. You know, pay paradise, a big yeah. yellow taxi took my dad away. And that's when it hit me like, wow, my whole life is about to change forever to get through this. And and what got me through that, to, to your question, was absolutely the love of family, with, without a doubt, and, and friends as well. It was just extraordinary. The bravery that my mum showed, the courage that she showed to get through that and deal with her own grief, and the resilience, I think, in particular of my sisters and, and brothers, because we had to pick up dad's cleaning company and had all these contracts, all these relationships with our contracts, had all these staffing. And to watch my, my older brothers and sisters become directors of this company immediately and just to help pick up the pieces was just amazing for me as the youngest boy who couldn't really do much at all to contribute. But to watch my family in terms of that resilience, that, that courage and bravery and, and that love. And I think they're the three values that I kind of try to emulate in my own life. And, and that came from, from my role models and, and it's kind of got me through and probably taken me on this journey that I'm kind of living out now, really. Yeah, and we talk a lot about that on reflection. There's actually been a fair bit of death in your life, like you've lost a couple of close friends as well. And so has that also influenced how you think about life and, the, and finding meaning in life? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my best friend Simon Strike died in a car accident on the way home from a, a 21st in, I reckon it was 1993, 1994. That was another incredible crucible moment for me. Um, and I remember giving his eulogy uh, at his funeral and I remember coming down off the altar of giving church and I just broke down for, I reckon, 15 minutes. It was just, just sheer agony and pain to say goodbye to your, to your best friend. And yeah, losing Damien Hill the night before my 40th birthday was my best friend from primary school. And I go, wow, what's kind of going on here? Like, don't get too close to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind yeah. Kind of thing of this fear of what's going on. And all those events, Mel, they're, they're crucible moments. And we're actually going through one right now with the pandemic, right? And these crucible moments they are these life-altering moments and they're laced with meaning. I didn't realize this at the time, obviously, right? I'm a young kid, but they kind of force you to ask these kind of deep existential questions like what's going on, you know, what really matters to me? Where am I going? Where are we going? Where do you find happiness and joy and purpose and meaning sort of things? And if you can kind of lean into these moments and make sense of it, it can create this post-traumatic growth as opposed to post, post-traumatic stress. And I think in all those times when I've, I guess, I've lent in and not gone off the rails, although I've gone off the rails at some stage through just pure grief, what comes at the other side of those things is the power of dedication. And I think what I've learned from those experiences and Rob Dixon was my first client when I came back to Australia and, and set up Gemba. He was arguably the best storyteller that I've ever seen. And he, he won Survivor. He was the first Australian to win Survivor, Rob. And he was killed filming on location with the AFL in South Africa with his two little boys in the car as well. 
And I remember since when, when he died, just dedicating every time I gave a talk to, to Rob Dixon. And when I talk now on emotional health, I dedicate part of that to Spud Frawley, Danny Frawley, who was a, who was a really dear friend as well. So all these people that I've kind of lost along the way, I try and take an element of them with me and it means I can still talk to them. Obviously, they can't talk back, but I feel like they're still with me in, a, I guess, a spiritual sense. And there's something quite peaceful and beautiful about me being able to do that. And I can kind of dedicate a part of my life to them and just be grateful, I guess, that you know, I'm still here and, and I'm still going. But I can dedicate that talk or that chapter to, to these people that I've loved and that have helped me along my journey. So that's, I guess, my way of, of getting perspective around these, you know, these tragic events that happen along the way. Yeah. Well, just going back a little bit, you, you came out of university and you got a job with the Australian Hockey Association in promotions. How did you get the job with Nike? The Hockey Association, it's a really strong participation sport, hockey, but not a strong profile sport. So I was kind of asked just to bring more storytelling, creativity to that. So we changed the name of the team to the Kookaburras. We created a National Hockey League had some really good personalities from some of the individuals and Nike was keen to get a footprint into some of these new sports, indigenous sports in Australia at the time. So, so they sponsored us through the Barcelona Olympics and we created some promotional ideas with Nike and Nike was a very American and African-American company at the time, kind of Charles Barclay, Carl Lewis, Michael Jordan. They didn't have really have any local heroes. So after the Barcelona Olympics, they reached out and asked if I would be interested in coming along and, and starting their promotions department or sports marketing department. And yeah, so I joined Nike like six months later. And, you know, it's really interesting, Mel. The only person that I told I wanted to, was Simon Strike, who mm. died just a few months before I joined Nike. And it was kind of weird. Like, it was so, like I got this phone call out of the blue from Nike. I had no connection with other than just, you know, there's some sponsorships asking if I'd come along and, and join them. And so, you know, if you ever want to believe that you do have these angels up, up there looking after you, Strikey was definitely looking after me. And yeah, I joined Nike and, and that kind of changed my life as well. Yeah, I'm determined to get you to stop calling Nike a storytelling platform. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know, I know, but I will continually, I'll continue to call it. And obviously I'm a, a little bit biased, but it, it is. That's where I learned the power of storytelling and the emotional connection you get. But by the way, it's not just Nike. If I was working for Disney... If I was working for any organization in the entertainment that, that uses storytelling to capture the imagination, I mean, religion does it, whether yeah. you read the Quran or the Bible, yeah. it's the, you know, whoever tells the best story wins, yeah. right? Because it creates this emotional connection. So yes, I know they sell shoes and <laughs> apparel and so forth, but that's where I guess I learned amongst other places, the power of storytelling in the emotional connection way. And as you think about it, Mel, there's no rational reason why you love your favorite song whether you love your favorite movie, you love your favorite sporting team, it's an irrational, emotional connection we have with entertainment products. And the best way to create that emotional connection is through storytelling. Having said that, I do get it. I, I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about your first overseas trip with Nike, which I just love this story. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so my first trip to the States, 1994 or 1995, I can't remember which, but yeah, it was to the Lipton Tennis Tournament in Miami. And the Miami Open is considered the fifth Grand Slam. And I was there just to learn the ropes because Nike was about to sponsor the Australian Open. But my boss at the time, Ian Hamilton, had really given me no support at all. He was off high-fiving, hanging out, playing golf and stuff. Anyway, the last night he said, look, I feel really bad. I want to bring you out to dinner, meet some of the other Nike people. I said, yeah, no worries. So I didn't realize who I was about to meet it was Phil Knight, the founder of Nike, and his wife, Penny, 
Michael Jordan's agent, Howard White, Pete Sampras and Delana, his girlfriend at the time, Andre and his wife, Brooke, at the time, Ian Hamilton, one or two others, and me, right? So who's a duck out of water at that dinner, right? <laughs> Do you ever go to those dinner parties, Mel, when you have absolutely nothing to contribute? Absolutely. To the conversation? <laughs> yes. Well, this was that night for me. And, and I you was- were, you were young. You were like 24. 25. 25. I was so nervous, yeah. right? And it was like- They'd say things like, oh, how cute is his accent, right? As if I wasn't actually there. So I was listening to this little puppet, like, say something else now. Anyway, uh, I got through the dinner and Phil, the only question he asked me, you know, Ben, when are you flying back to Australia? And I said, actually, I'm flying up to Portland, Oregon tomorrow, you know, Nike's headquarters. And he said, do you want a lift? And I knew he had a private jet. But you know what was really weird, Mel? I just joined this thing at the time called Frequent Flyers. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. And <laughs> I really wanted my points, right? And I'm thinking, God, how do I tell Phil that I don't want a lift? Because I really want these Frequent Flyer points. Anyway, I got on the plane about an hour early and, oh, again, I was so nervous, you know, that, that classic anxiety attack thing. And I said to the, the pilot, the student, like, what do I do? Where do I sit? What do I say? And she said, relax, relax, just sit there. Michael Jordan's man will sit there. Phil will sit there. Penny will sit there. And anyway, no worries. And I got on the plane. The plane took off. And I look over and Phil's got his shoes and socks off. I think, and I'd read up about this Japanese influence in, in his work and his life and so forth. Like, oh, no. So when no one was watching, I quickly got down one shoe off in the sock and then the other shoe and the other sock off and put it down. I got away with it. Anyway, I looked over and he had his shoes and socks back on. He was just scratching his feet. And now everyone's looking at me going, who is this jock Aussie? Shoeless Shoeless guy. Aussie gets on a plane and just starts throwing his socks around there. So, but anyway, it was, a, I think, a six or seven hour flight from Miami to Portland. And Bill and Penny couldn't have been more beautiful. And we actually got into some quite deep conversations. And- I don't know why I'm no good at surface conversation. I like to, you know, take the onion layer back really quickly. So I was asking Phil about starting the company and how he and Penny had actually met. Um, Sally and I were engaged at the time, so asking about what's his advice on a successful marriage and just it was a really fun conversation that went a whole lot of different parts. And when we landed, not only did he drive me to the campus, he actually carried my bags <laughs> and I might have knocked off all this Nike merchandise. I'm thinking, please don't open my bags. <laughs> Please don't open my bags. I've got so many free Nike shirts and stuff. <laughs> anyway, yeah, he carried my bags in, and I think there was a bit, a fair bit of shock amongst the people I was supposed to meet. That, and I think he loves tennis and he loves Australia. So when he came, when he used to come back, I used to look after him, and I'd fly up with uh, his two kids and Penny to Sydney with my boss Steve Miller at, at the time, and we'd hang out and yeah, have beautiful memories. And it's been really nice to stay in touch with Phil ever ever since leaving Nike. We'll be back in a moment, but in the meantime, reviews help people find us. So if you like what we're doing, it'd be great if you could help us out. Just jump on your podcast app and give us a rating to spread the word and let us know what you love. You've obviously met lots of famous athletes, but what about, you had a lot to do with Shane Warne. Yeah, we signed Shane back in 1994 and... Yeah, he's just one of the most beautiful, larrikin, imperfect, uh, incredibly kind humans that I've ever met. And he was not, well, none of us were prepared for the tsunami that Shane Warne was going to bring onto the whole world. And the things I love most about Shane, uh, reflecting on his life, was just this kind of unabashed boy from Black Rock who wanted to stay as normal as possible, but it was almost impossible to do that because the the whole persona and positioning around Shane just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, as such as the impact that, you know, the Australian cricket team has with our psyche as well. And, 
yeah, I remember going over there to have some sessions with him on the Air Flipper, which was the shoe that we were creating for, for Shane. And to launch him, we took him across to North America. We shot a, a campaign with him and Charles Barclay. We flew down to meet Michael Jordan, who was playing baseball at the time for the Birmingham Barons. I lost him in LA airport, if you can believe this. Um, we were getting on a plane. I got on the plane to Memphis is where we were flying. And I got on the plane and looked around and goes, where's Shane? And I looked at my, my colleague, Rin Scrimshaw, I said, where's, where's Shane? He goes, I thought he was with you. Right? I'm going, we're about to meet Channel 9, Wild World of Sports, who are doing a whole documentary on the whole Shane Warren Nike thing. And we've lost him. I had to ring my boss from the aeroplane phone and say, oh, look, I'm so sorry, but I've lost Shane Warren. Anyway, he was in LA airport getting business cards made up for some, you know, very funny thing. In those days, you could get business cards made up for, I don't know, Australian modeling agency or whatever, just have a bit of fun. Anyway, I got to Memphis thinking, what am I going to do here? Um, how can I do <laughs> introduce Michael Jordan to no Shane Warren? We got through the airport, and you're not going to believe this, but I looked up, and underneath the chairs, all on his own, was Shane Warren. He was asleep. Asleep? He had, he had navigated how to get his own way to Memphis and got on a different plane and got there before we did. Right? He was having a nap. Yeah, he, was, he, he had a couple hours to kill. It was like five o'clock in the morning. So he literally was asleep there and that, that made us laugh. Uh, the, uh, the funny story that, uh, for Shane, when Sally and I were leaving Nike Australia to go move to Nike Asia Pacific, Shane came over to say goodbye with Simone in his Ferrari, right? So Shane and Simone, who are both you know, beautiful human beings, get out of this Ferrari Come out. We've got all the people packing up our boxes to take all our um, belongings to Hong Kong. Anyway, they were so distracted by having Shane and Simone there. They actually put all the things that were supposed to go into storage to Hong Kong. Oh, no. <laughs> and all the things supposed to go to Hong Kong in storage. And they were just staring at these guys the whole time. And Shane was so good. He'd pose for a photograph or an autograph with, with anyone. Well, But, yeah, I love the story that you reflected on of uh, you know, going around to their house for dinner. And just having the most beautiful evening where, you know, couldn't cook, save themselves at the time, but neither could we. <laughs> we ended up just having strawberry quick and playing PlayStation till the hours. And I do remember having just laughing nonstop. And I thought that was, that's Shane. That's the, that's the human being that, um, that I guess they're the memories that I love the most. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. When you came back to Australia, you went into a period of setting up, up businesses. Yeah. Is it fair to say that you make a better mindset coach than you do a business? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, Mel, maybe. Um, yeah, no, Gemba, the first company, actually, and still is, yeah, really, really successful and, and yep. yeah, really, really profitable. For myself, having said that, yeah, I was completely burnt out and kind of same bed, different dreams in terms of what I wanted to do. But the, yeah, the business we created, I'm, re- I'm really, really proud of. Unscripted, on the other hand, yeah, that definitely didn't turn out anywhere near that that I would have liked. But Mojo, my third one, that's, yeah, pretty excited about that, um, how that's, that's going 12 months in. And yeah, that seems to have captured the imagination. And I've learned a lot, having said that, Mel, about business and, and how to run it and, yeah, and how to, how to structure it in a way and, and plan for growth. I've made all the mistakes that I've made along the way over the last yeah, 20, 30 years in terms of Mojo. So, but I think your point's probably accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and obviously Unscripted was end up being sold off and you lost some famous people money, so like Kathy Freeman. I mean, what did you learn from that to restructure things better or just do what you love maybe? Because you really, I mean, you said to me that you, it took you until you were 53 to work out what you really wanted to do. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, the Unscripted chapter was amazing chapter, incredible idea for athletes as storytellers. Um, so it was an athlete storytelling platform. Yeah, it was just ahead of us. It was, uh, and there was a lot of disruption going in the media industry globally at the time, a lot yep. of innovation. And 
it was an embryonic kind of native marketplace that we were navigating. And yeah. when we set up the business, Facebook did not have a video platform, if you can believe that. Yeah. At all, right? So the idea at the time was um, was amazingly powerful. But what happened during that time is there was also a lot of, you didn't own the value chain as much. Yeah. So, and it was reliant on, you know, certain social media platforms for that growth and they could change the rules and the algorithms So suddenly... If you're working with Ronaldo, Cristiano Ronaldo, he's got 100 million views. You don't get uh, 100 million followers. You don't get 100 million views. You get five, ten. You've got to pay extra for yeah, yeah. To, for that reach. So there was a lot of changing and disruption at, at that time. So it didn't work out. But yeah, in terms of the entrepreneurialism of that idea, it was yeah, it was really really solid. It just didn't work out at the time. So it was dis- it was disappointing. But the ideas of helping athletes with their story is still very much a part of me today. It's just it's more the internal storytelling that I guess I had more of a passion for than the external storytelling. But it's a combination of both. You know, when I work with clients today, whether that's a CEO who has to give a talk at a shareholders meeting or you know Ash talking at a press conference. It's the same thing. It's just that my hypothesis, at, which back at Nike, is most of us, most athletes don't know who they are and most humans don't know who they yeah. are. Um, as a consequence of that, they don't know how to share their story because they don't know what they stand for and what they believe in. They can often get tongue-tied and twisted when they're trying to articulate themselves. But they've got this incredible platform because they're famous or you know, they're well-known in order to, to tell their story. But I think if you can re-engineer it and go internal first and then external and kind of find yourself and then work out how to tell your story – that's probably the journey that it, it, right now, as you said, I'm 53 years old. I've just worked out what I want to do when I grow up. <laughs> yeah. And I, yeah, I do feel like I'm in my, I, I guess I'm in my sweet spot right now. Yeah. And you first started on the sort of mentoring business with our world champion surfer, Stephanie Gilmore, and also your friend, Hawthorne coach, Alistair Clarkson. Yeah. yeah. So tell me how you got onto being a mentor to Stephanie Gilmore. Steph, yeah. Yeah. She got attacked randomly out the front of her apartment by a, a drug addict on ice and but attacked her with a hammer and broke her arm, broke her skull and she went off the tour and, and she'd just come off winning three world titles in a row and yeah, I reckon she almost lost her innocence through that, through that kind of chapter and I think it was through her sponsor, Roxy, who knew of the work that I was doing um, in a few other areas. They reached out to me about doing some sessions with Steph yeah, I think she flew down to Melbourne and popped over to my office. And yeah, I'll never forget the first time uh, Steph walks in and she was joking because I was also mentoring quite a few uh, the people in the surf community, World Surf League kind of CEOs and Quicksilver CEOs and so forth. So a lot of people knew the work that I was kind of doing. And she jokingly said, um, Ben, I've been told you can tell me the meaning of life. And she says this is a joke. I was, and I said, yeah, do you want to know what it is? And suddenly she got this serious look on her face. I go, oh, that, that was just a joke. Like, I said, do you want to know? And she goes kind of, yeah. <laughs> kind of scared. I said, do you want to sit down for this? And she got really scared. I go, oh, okay. And, and she goes, well, what is it? And I go, well, to serve others. And I go, I could say to love others, but at its core, it's just to, to serve others. Anyway, we got into a really deep conversation in the first three minutes of her sitting down. And she goes, well, you know, like, what about me? Like, you know, I'm, I'm – you know, professional athlete, and I've won all these world titles and, you know, it's very much my, my dream that I'm, I'm going after. So it's all about me, kind of inference. And I said, and I said, and how's that working out for you? And she goes, yeah, I'm a bit miserable. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, it got a really beautiful conversation and yeah, I started working with, with Steph back then. Again, kind of as much the external storytelling as, as the internal side of things. But yeah, she's been on the most beautiful journey, Steph, over the last, well, her whole life, right? But, you know, the, her ability to deal with setbacks, whether it's injuries or, 
whatever it is, her crucible moments and come out the other side. Um, she's just, yeah, a beautiful, beautiful human being. Yeah. I mean, I mean, when I first asked you about mentoring Steph, your face just lit up. Like you just, you loved it, didn't you? The whole experience. Yeah, I do. Yeah. I mean, and look, you don't have to do much mentoring with Stephanie Gilmore because um, she's got the most beautiful family around her as well. And I mean, her perspective has absolutely been shaped as well. But a lot of my clients, and, um, and Steph's a great example of it, I feel like they mentor me more so than I mentor them because I learn their perspective. And, you know, I love surfing as well, but that connection to nature which and the ocean, which is almost like a spiritual connection. I remember she said to me early on in the piece that the world has forgotten how to breathe. And I just found that so fascinating. And she was one who told me that when we're babies, we breathe through our diaphragm. Mm means we breathe out where there's 75% more oxygen. Yeah. But when we become adults, we get all stressed and nervous and we breathe through our lungs where there's only 25% oxygen. And she said, if we could just teach the world how to breathe, and I know there's a lot of like box breathing where you breathe, breathe in for four, mm. hold for four, breathe out for four, yeah. hold for four. So there's all these different breathing techniques. But I actually be- like believe how powerful that is because it's the quickest mind hack. When you're breathing through your diaphragm, it's the quickest mind hack to tell the brain everything's going to be okay, right? Because if you're about to be attacked by a tiger, or a shark, you're not going to be relaxed, belly breathing, Buddha, Buddha-esque kind of relaxed. You're going to be in your lungs in that kind of cortisol, fight or flight kind of place. Yep. So her perspective on things, whether it's life or, or nature or competition, is just yeah, really, really special. You've also done a lot of work with the Richmond Football Club. How do you see yourself as part of their amazing success? What part did you play in it? And also, can you tell me about another thing I didn't put in the piece, but how you were watching them at the 2017 Grand Final as a a Mad Tigers fan yourself. Yeah, first question, I don't think I played much of a role at all. In fact, you know, Damien and Trent. That's the the captain and the coach. Yep, sorry, yeah, and Brendan, the CEO, and Peggy, the the president, they did all the heavy lifting that particular year, and Trent and and Damien in particular, right? Yeah, I might have been able to put a mirror up to them and, you know, teach them some, you know, some exercises and principles about connecting with themselves. But no, they did all the work. And timing is everything, Mel. And the orchestra, if you think about an orchestra, everyone has a different instrument and plays different roles. Shane McCurry came in, who, another beautiful human around the leadership program, Emma Murray, incredible human who ran the mindfulness program as well with the team that year. They had new coaches come in, some new players and so forth. So the chemistry that that everyone understanding their roles was just beautiful, just amazing. Yeah, it was, a, it was a pleasure to be part of that journey, but I genuinely say they did all the heavy lifting. As far as the premiership, I back to Richmond as a kid and I have beautiful memories of going with my dad, MCG, in the 1970s and yeah. listening to him abuse umpires and scream out and have his, you know, four and 20s and so forth. So, and obviously the drought that Richmond had been on for quite some time. And thanks to Richmond, they were able to arrange my whole family tickets to that game. We were spread out all over the MCG because there's a lot, a lot of crows. Of crows. Yeah. There's a lot of crows at that game. I have an incredible memory of just when the siren goes, um, looking over to Harry, who's my oldest, who, who you spoke to, and just the to see his face and the tears well up and the hug that we gave each other at that particular moment. It was great because obviously I was working with a club, but in that moment I was just a fan and I was just a dad of a son who, you know, the, 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 the Crow family connection with Richmond goes back generations. So that was an incredible moment. We both cried quite a lot. And yeah, I think a few people took some photographs of us in that, in that moment, which I'll cherish forever. And yeah, it was, um, I didn't realize they'd win three <laughs> over the next four years. But yeah, that was an incredible, incredibly beautiful memory. And I, I get the emotional connection that we have with, with sporting teams is very similar to religion in a way because, you know, the world demands a heroic response 
and sport, and athletes can somehow show us the way. And, you know, we see our heroes with a capital H. Well, we want to be little heroes with a little H. And sometimes we don't know how to do that. But through our sporting teams and emulating their, you know, um, the against the odds romance, trying to achieve their goals, we kind of have that subliminal connection with that and believing we can achieve our goals. It's completely irrational, Matt, yeah, but yeah. Um, I totally get it. And in that moment, I, I, I actually experienced it. Oh, awesome. When you do a life plan for someone, how do you go about it? The, the three questions you have to answer is, um, who am I? What do I want? And, and how do I get there? Right? Um, who am I is what we call connection mindset. And that's about connecting with ourselves. Right? And it's the human being before the human doing, Mel. And the goal is to create a set of words and mantras and affirmations that reminds us of who we are at our best. And if we can own our story unconditionally, it's not conditional upon having to do anything or achieve anything. Right? We've got this unconditional sense of self-worth and success is not whether we achieve our goals. It's believing that we're worthy. It's believing that we're enough. Part of that process is letting go of these constant not enoughness stories because as humans, we're really good at saying what we're not and we kind of suck at saying what we are. And that reptilian brain with a negative bias is designed to protect us, not to actually find that unconditional sense of self. And that's my probably hypothesis at the moment is that we're so distracted by creating our self-worth by achieving and money and fame and you know, status and recognition that we've lost the art of just being human. And so that whole first process is just working out who am I? And there's nowhere you can go. There's no such thing as human school where you can learn to be a good human being first, right? Um, through the breakdown of religion and government and we're often just getting distracted by these things. So that's the first process. The second, once you've answered that question, then you've got permission to work out what you want. And if answering who am I is where you'll find confidence, and certainly confidence in yourself, answering what do I want is where you'll find happiness, especially if unlocking what you want not only unlocks a sense of purpose and meaning and contribution beyond ourselves, but it also unlocks our values and our goals and our motivations and our needs and our dreams. And that's really, really exciting when you can help someone identify these goals and dreams, but also understand their values. That, you know, that kind of holds them accountable to themselves to stop rationalizing their life away, but finding a sense of purpose that's beyond them because that kind of unlocks this sense of contribution and gets us into chapter three of the hero's journey where we find our bliss. Uh, that's pretty powerful. And the third question is, how do I get there? And this is where we develop an operating system for ourselves. We find our A-game, we find our mojo, we find mentors, you know, we find our ability to, to create healthy habits. And that's probably the one that during COVID, we got smashed with requests for performance mindset. And I wouldn't do it for people because, you know, I can help someone win a Grand Slam final maybe once, right? Or help someone achieve their goals once. But if you don't do the heavy lifting along the way, there will be that those shame stories, that imposter syndrome that constantly shows up in different chapters of our life, constantly telling us that is maybe I'm not worthy of this relationship or this promotion, or we'll go after what we want as a substitute for who we are. And I think that's what's happening today. We're going after extrinsic motivations, believing that once I make that money, then I'll be enough. I had a client in, in New York recently who told me once he made his third billion, he thought his dad would love him. And I think that's the crisis that we're dealing with today. Or once I'm famous, then I'll be enough. Or once I get that promotion, then I'll be enough. Or once I'm recognized. And this craving of recognition is constantly obsessing and caring what people think about ourselves rather than what we think about ourselves. Because now we want others to give me what I'm not prepared to give myself, unconditional love. Will someone please recognize <laughs> me? Or the gap. Yeah, acknowledge me, accept me, love me. I was like, uh-uh. You've got to give that to yourself first. You've got to find yourself. And find that then, then you can lose yourself, lose ego, lose identity, and, and then focus on someone else to love. Yeah. And I think we've just got that formula, that process wrong. And I think that's causing so much anxiety and, and depression and, and issues in the world today. Do you have a mindset coach? Oh, my God. 
I don't, but I desperately want one and need one. So, who do you go to for that? Like, who, who, where do you start? Like, are the kind of uber mindset coaches that mindset coaches go to? Well, it's a really good question, Mel. I mean, all my clients are mentors, as I, as I said, mm. whether you call them reverse mentors or co-mentors and so forth. I, I get as much out of the sessions as my clients do, especially from a pattern recognition thing. We work with so many diverse clients and, and you find up things that can help each other. I do an enormous amount of reading. Um, definitely my, the people close to me, like my friends and family, are absolutely mentors because they'll keep me honest. But they'll things also, real. Oh, my God, do they? They'll also open my eyes in, in so many ways as well. And, yeah, I've got a few ex-Nike colleagues who I connect with. Um, and overseas recently, I was able to connect with, with some of them as well. And, you know, you know that classic saying, when the pupil is ready, the preacher will come. Yeah. And it'll come in the way of a – it may be coming in, in a human mentor, but these mentors don't even have to be alive. Yeah, you know, the beautiful readings that that you can get from from all over the world, whether it's philosophy or or religion or psychology and so forth. There's an amazing amount of human beings that have that have come way before that you can you know you can understand their work. But it also could be a good book or a good movie or a good documentary or or so forth. So I don't consider mentors just that you know the, the traditional way. You can learn from so many different different perspectives, whether I know them or not. Well, on that, who are you admiring right now in that sort of area? What books are you, or movies or documentaries are giving you meaning or sort of a spiritual sustenance right now? Wow, that's a great question. There's so many. Um, I think if I just go through them off the top, whether, whether they're books or, or so forth, Adam Grant, um, who's quite a well-known psychologist, I love his work, especially during the pandemic. He spoke a lot about languishing versus flourishing and the principles of being in flow, um, which I link very closely to the intrinsic motivations that we work on with clients. Um, Michael Gervais is another psychologist, more a sports psychologist. He's very, very similar in terms of the controllables and uncontrollables. Both of them have got great books and, and great podcasts out as well. Everyone knows my, my love of Brené Brown. <laughs> yes, I, sh- I share that love of Brené. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, she's the godmother of vulnerability and yeah. she packaged up these themes in the most powerful way. And I had dinner with Brené Brown when she was in Australia recently through Richmond and, and Trent Cochin. And I said to her, I was so nervous to meet her, Mel, and when I met her, I said, look, I just, I've, I worked out why I was so nervous too. I said, I just want to tell you two things. First of all, I just want to say thank you for um, what you've done for the world and packaged up these principles. And secondly, I just want to apologize for making so much money out of your work <laughs> in terms of educating Did she take that and, well or no, did no, she, she like- took it well. I, I just got back from Moscow yeah. uh, and I'd worked with 500 CEOs for a week and I said, you have to get to Moscow because it was on vulnerability and she's, she's absolutely the, you know, the specialist in that. Um, the Happiness Lab with Laurie Santos. I'm not yeah. sure if you come across yeah, her work. I have, I have heard her podcast. Yeah, she, yeah, she's another psychologist, but the, her perspective on on happiness and confidence and and the storytelling of that podcast is is beautiful. Obviously, you know I love Ted Lasso, yes. and every single episode I felt like my office was being bugged because it, it was extraordinary the the similar themes that their writers came up with. We're going, oh my god, this is exactly what we do with a team or a or an athlete or a CEO. Like it was scary similar around vulnerability, around controllables and uncontrollables, around gratitude, the perspective in that show just just blew me away. But, you know, I could also say anything, any movie that Robin Williams has ever, has ever, has yes. ever done uh, has extraordinary lessons in that from Dead Poet Society to Goodwill Hunting. Well, you to- love that scene in Goodwill Hunting. I, I actually had that in the piece. I had to take it out, unfortunately. But can you just talk about that? Totally. If you ever want to watch a scene to understand how it's the imperfections that connect humans, yeah, when he spoke about how his wife used to fart in her sleep. Yeah. yeah woke up the dog. Woke up the dog. Woke up one, herself. Yeah. 
Totally, totally. And that's the thing that I think we've lost that perspective because because if, if I start craving recognition, what does Mel Fife think of me, Ryan? I'll try and put on this perfection mask and try and say the, the answers in the perfect way and have a beautiful anecdote and so forth. But if you just celebrate imperfection, if you go completely the other way, that's where the gold is, right? It's the nuances and the idiosyncrasies and the laughter and you know the self-deprecating humor that you do so beautifully in your writing, Mel. That's what connects humans. And I think, because that's also where laughter comes from, right? And I think if we can get back to just being more playful and celebrating those imperfections and nuances, we create a connection that we didn't realize that we had when you go behind the scenes and find the stories behind the stories. And yeah, Robin Williams. And I know how he used to go off-pissed. Now, if you, if you actually watch that scene again, yes, you see the camera shaking. Yes, I watched it after you said yeah, that you, the, the you reason, recommended it. The reason the camera is shaking is because... Because <laughs> he's laughing. Because the cinematographers behind the... They couldn't stop laughing because they didn't know where he was going. And that's why the camera was actually shaking in that particular mm. scene. So, yeah, anything. I'm just reading a book at the moment from Arthur C. Brooks called... Um, what is it? From Strength to Strength. And it's about the second half of your life, right? So, I'm 53, right? But it's in terms of... You know, when you might lose the capabilities, whether it's physical or, or intellectual, but how the second half of your life could actually be even more powerful and impactful if you let go of that and you understand the wisdom and the legacy that you can kind of leave behind. And that's a really beautiful book at the moment that I'm, that I'm reading. But all those people that I mentioned before, they've all got yeah, amazing books as well that, that I go after. Well, uh, Ben Crow, thank you very much for coming in and going through this excruciating process. <laughs> That is a good weekend profile. It really, really meant a lot to me hanging out with you and really loved our chat today. Thanks. Thanks, Mel. Thanks, you. And thank you for yeah promoting these themes and, and principles around, around the world at the moment. Yeah, as we discussed, I've never seen the world so distracted as it is right now. And yeah, I think if we can redefine success from a more intrinsic point of view and find the joy in there, we just take so much pressure off ourselves. Like, unnecessary interference pressure that's happening at the moment is on like epidemic levels. So thank you for you know, putting a, a spotlight on, on some of these themes as well and for keeping me honest and, and humble and taking the piss out of me along the way as well. I promise to never call you a walking bumper sticker ever again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, we'll see, we'll see. Um, thanks, Mel. Thanks, Ben. Good Weekend Talks is brought to you by the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Subscriptions power our newsroom. To support independent journalism, search Subscribe Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. If you'd like to read more about Ben Crow, you can find a link to Mel's story in the podcast show notes. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Good Weekend Talks is produced by Yuji Shimada. Technical assistance from Nathaniel Cooper. Editing from Conrad Marshall. Tom McKendrick is head of audio. And Katrina Strickland is the editor of Good Weekend.